Welcome to the ninth episode of the NeuroCompass podcast. My name is Steven Sinecrope, neuroscience major at the University of Chicago, and everything I say is for educational entertainment purposes and not medical advice. Today's topic relates to some pop culture and is focused on a lot of future projections, but has reached an exciting precipice of development, and that is in the area of brain-machine interface. Immediately, your first question is likely, what is a brain-machine interface? A brain-machine interface, or BMI, decodes neuroelectrical, magnetic, or metabolic signals in order to translate them into control information for computers and or machines. In simpler terms, it is any interface that connects signals derived from the brain in order to manipulate a machine or computer. The first historical example of what would come to be considered a brain-machine interface was introduced in 1964 by Gray Walter, using non-invasive EEG electroencephalogram signals to control a slide projector. An EEG, if you're not aware, is a means of measuring broad nonspecific patterns in electrical activity in the brain through electrodes placed in the scalp. In 1971, when brain-computer interface, a term synonymous with brain-machine interface, was coined by Jacques J. Vidal in a publication planning in detail how it would be possible to interface the human brain with computers through low-amplitude transdermal signals. Vidal is now a professor emeritus at the University of California, Los Angeles, Computer Science Department. Plans to interface the human brain with computers has since grown exponentially with examples ranging from children's toys using EEG technology to levitate a foam ball to enabling a paralyzed person to control and feel a prosthetic limb to closed-loop deep brain stimulation, where signals are read in order to change the input delivered. The next logical question then becomes, how exactly do these interfaces work? To trace the development of this technology, in the 1990s, chronic or permanent multi-electrode recording consisting of metal filaments began to be implanted across cortical and subcortical structures in rodents, meaning both surface and deep. And these would generate both single and multi-unit activity, meaning from both a single neuron or brain cell and from multiple in the circuit. And by the year 2000, the research standard included the ability to simultaneously monitor the activity of up to 100 neurons or brain cells. Once this technology moved to non-human primates, human application became apparent. So once you have the ability to measure the activity of a large number of cells and networks in the brain, what is next? Well, in a prosthetic, these brain signals must be translated into mechanical actuations or movements so it becomes very important that this raw neural activity must be decoded in order to discern the volitional intent or intended movement. In many other brain-machine interface applications, the neural data needs to then be classified or sorted into certain categories in order to assign a sort of brain state. For an example, let's imagine a brain-machine interface which recognizes whether an individual is awake or asleep and automatically turns the lights in their house on or off. In this instance, the data readout from the scalp EEG or intracortical electrodes would be sorted every time it was sampled or when data is collected, and this data would need to be decoded to discern whether the individual was in a sleep or an awake state. And the ability to decode neural data stems from sorting of rate and temporal codes from individual neurons within networks, which at a more basic level just means analyzing the changes in activity of these cells in terms of when these cells are most active with rate code and the patterns of activity over time, temporal codes. Now, while what I have said sounds like a pretty simple process in theory, 
it becomes insanely difficult to construct detailed representations of planned movements and activity states from just a squiggly line on an EEG reading or a depiction of firing rates. So the most popular way to facilitate decoding is through some kind of a machine learning or artificial intelligence process, which at a basic level, to those unfamiliar, is a computer program which can improve upon its own functioning. Which if we use the same example of an asleep versus awake state decoding from earlier, there could be an algorithm tasked with assigning a state to raw data based upon a few parameters or just based upon already sorted control scans. Um, using many scans with known outcomes, the program becomes more and more adept at determining the state correctly. There is significantly more nuance to this, but this is the basic principle. In brain-machine interface research, extensive primate microelectrode recording during trained movements is one popular me method for generating neural data sets and practicing how movements could be predicted from the recorded activity in the motor cortex. Estimations of motor mapping, or the actual circuitry which creates those planned movements, is later constructed, so separate from the process of discerning and decoding these movements. And this is done using mathematical modeling and linear optimization, with spike trains being the pattern of activity for both rate and temporal codes. Depending on the region and the goal of an individual brain-machine interface, there are many independent parameters that may also be imposed onto a data set in order to generate a fixed set of output variables, such as movement plans or actions in the different joints of a prosthesis. And in order to establish outputs for these parameters, the brain-machine interface must go through decoder training through many, many trials. Currently, there is ongoing research into how further utilization of machine learning and artificial intelligence could optimize methods for decoder training. And personally, I think active recording from individuals with already implanted brain-machine interfaces could contribute greatly to a machine learning decoding algorithm. And thus, as more brain-machine interfaces are implemented, we could be actively generating more and more data. So this is where we're at now, but the possibilities for clinical and commercial brain-machine interface systems are seemingly limitless. From non-invasive transdermal EEG recording controlling a video game avatar, all the way to an invasive multi-electrode array allowing a paralyzed individual to control and feel from prosthetic limbs, the latter of which is an area of research led by University of Chicago neuroscientist Sleeman Benzmaya, whose recent participation in publication outlines precise implementation of microelectrodes in somatosensory cortex for finger and fingertip representation. Another example of where brain-machine interfaces could be going, this year in March, Swiss researcher Marco Bonazzato published a paper detailing a mouse spinal cord injury model where a combination of deep brain stimulation, DBS, in the midbrain locomotor region and the lumbar spinal cord were able to produce walking in paralyzed animals. Brain-machine interface was utilized for decoding such that stimulation could result from cortical intention, thus mitigating detrimental side effects of chronic high-amplitude stimulation. And this thus closes the stimulatory loop. To reiterate, a combination of deep brain stimulation and brain-machine interface were able to re-establish intentional movements in a mouse with a severed spinal cord. The implication to this science to paralyze patients is remarkable. It would also be fascinating to see application in neuropsychiatric disorders like bipolar depression, where stimulation according to a brain-machine interface decoder could mitigate episodes of mania or depression without the need for chronic stimulation. Another example of a usage of brain-machine interface could be facilitating relief from phantom limb pain. Tamar Makin published a paper in 2020 detailing how amputees develop phantom limb pain due to remapping of somatosensory body representations, and input through a brain-machine interface could have the potential to maintain somatosensory representations, thus reducing phantom pains. I wonder how quickly after loss of limb brain-machine interface introduction would have to be 
before such remapping would occur, but more study would be needed. A final notable example of brain-machine interface innovation is Neuralink, a new company founded by the illustrious billionaire and founder of Tesla, Elon Musk. Neuralink seeks to revolutionize brain-machine interface research and commercialize the field of neural engineering as a whole. In a 2019 publication, Neuralink states that one of its primary goals is to increase microelectrode flexibility and channel count through development of polymer microelectrode probes which will be inserted by a surgical robot for widespread action potential monitoring. To translate that into more digestible language, the initial goal of Neuralink is to first develop an interface larger and more complex than ever before used in order to simultaneously monitor and manipulate a much larger cortical surface of the brain. And this will be done initially through advances in material science. Actualization of these achievements would enable recording and decoding from numerous cortical and subcortical areas on a scale far greater than ever previously planned. So now that you have a basic understanding of brain-machine interface and perhaps are even interested enough to go watch some videos of a Tesla-branded monkey playing video games in its mind, why should you care at all? Well, frankly, it is becoming more and more apparent that the next stage in human evolution is cybernetic and self-made, and the increasing viability of brain-machine interface applications will generate generations of ethical dilemmas for all of us to solve. To match the mood of this episode, I found a wonderful poem by Robert Frost entitled Leaves Compared with Flowers, published in 1937. A tree's leaves may be ever so good, so may its bark, so may its wood. But unless you put the right thing to its root, it never will show much flower or fruit. But I may be one who does not care ever to have tree bloom or bear, leaves for smooth and bark for rough, leaves and bark may be tree enough. Some giant trees have bloomed so small, they might as well have none at all. Late in life I have come on fern, now lichens are due to have their turn. I bade men tell me which in brief, which is fairer, flower or leaf. They did not have the wit to say, leaves by night and flowers by day, leaves and bark, leaves and bark, to lean against and hear in the dark. Petals I may have once pursued, leaves are all my darker mood. I imagine and imply the dichotomy of leaves and flowers as human and technology, developing complex thoughts about the modernization of society. I especially like the lines, but unless you put the right thing to its root, never will show much flower or fruit and some giant trees have bloomed so small they might as well have none at all i interpret these lines as saying humanity can succeed without the implementation of technology and modernity but also that describing the fragility of humanity and the ability for small changes like a scholarship or a mentor figure or even a brain machine interface to a suffering patient uh, to have the ability to unlock the beauty of leaves and bark the human individual. And with that comes the end of the ninth episode of the Neural Compass Podcast. Check me out on Instagram at Neural Compass Podcast, on Twitter at Neural underscore Compass, and at NeuralCompass.org.